0: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Gerald O'Driscoll. I'm going to chair this session, and it's my uh, honor uh, to introduce our luncheon speaker, uh, John Taylor, who's – I'm not going to read this very long uh, uh, and distinguished biography of his, but he is uh, the Marion Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University and the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution. He's had a long and distinguished career in academia, and a, a uh, multifaceted career in government. I first uh, met him, the first time we can remember meeting when he was Under Secretary of Treasury for International Affairs, and Alan Meltzer and I came in to tell him what, what dastardly things we were doing with the Meltzer Commission. Um, I, what many of you uh, have read, even if you don't follow technical economics, but I'm sure have seen, is his book, Getting Off Track, How Government Actions and Interventions Cause, Prolonged and Worse in the Financial Crisis. And I think it was was a remarkable effort to get a book out on a crisis in the middle of the crisis that had really serious things to say and that framed the issues uh, for a lot of people and framed debate for a lot of people. And that was a real uh, public service contribution, uh, and many of us read that book. But uh, he is our luncheon speaker today, and uh, if you're not familiar with his work, it's uh, well laid out in this biography that you've received, and I'll give you John Taylor.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate the invitation. It's uh, good to be back here at the Monetary Conference. It's uh, been a while since I've been here, so I'm really very pleased to be back. I'm going to talk today about some ideas I've had recently um, about what I call in the written version of the speech legislating a rule for monetary policy. Basically, what I'm going to do is think about modernizing certain aspects of legislation passed in the late 1970s, which were discarded in 2000. That's basically the the gist of what I'm going to try to do. Now, a number of years ago, I uh, proposed a rule uh, for monetary policy. I had no intention and never mentioned the possibility of such a rule being written into law Uh, used for accountability or even used to monitor uh, central banks. The purpose really was to help central bankers uh, perform their task I think in a more rule-like manner with less discretion and thereby try to help them achieve their goals of monetary policy more effectively, basically price stability and economic stability. It was based on at the time, uh, research in the, largely in the 70s and 80s on uh, academic work on the design of monetary policy rules. How rules should be put together in order to improve the performance of monetary policy. So it was not just willy-nilly, it came out of a lot of people's research at the time. And it, it was a way to set interest rates, and I'll come back to it, but basically that was was a while ago. So we learned, during the period since then, we've learned a lot. Again, the rules were based on what we learned in the decades before, but in the decades since these rules were proposed, we've learned a lot more. Uh, One of the things we've learned is these kinds of rules are really quite robust to different ways of thinking about how economic policy works. And that's based on simulating such rules in different kinds of models, as wide a variety as I think is feasible. So it works sort of quite robust to different ways of thinking. It works well in the sense of keeping prices stable and not not causing uh, big recessions. Second thing we learned is that a lot of people used such, began to use and have used such rules, both in the private sector and in the public sector, to think about, monetary policy. So in the financial sector, you'll see reference to rules for forecasting, uh, just analyzing what a central bank is going to do, and this is not just in the United States. But, of course, policymakers themselves have, at least uh, in the last 20 years, begun to talk about rules for formulating policy. And now people have gone back, for example, and looked at the transcripts of the FOMC uh, in the in the 90s, and seeing uh, I think quite amazing number of references to policy rules. I've never been in an FOMC meeting, so I find it quite interesting. to I, I found it quite interesting to see all these references. So that's the second thing we learned. And the third thing we learned, I think, from a practical experience, is when central banks come close to following such rules, things work pretty well. A, after all, we've had we had long expansions short recessions, uh, mild, relatively mild recessions in much of the 80s and 90s. Economists call that the great moderation, looking back on that period. And we also have found, and I think the recent experience adds evidence to this, although it's not the only evidence, that when policymakers become too short-run focused, uh, too discretionary, um, that uh, the economy doesn't perform As well, and looking at history, different countries, you can see that. So I think that's the third thing uh, we learn. Again, robustness. People use them; they work. So why am I interested in considering legislating policy rules, using the the law in some way to to uh, encourage their use, if you like? The reason is I think recently policy has become more short. Focus, short term focus, less discretionary, more discretionary, excuse me, more discretionary and less rule like. And so the idea here is maybe with some legislation uh, we could get policy to be more uh, rule like and less uh, interventionist, if you like, and that that would improve performance, in fact, may get us back to the kind of good performance we had for a couple of decades. So that's really the purpose of all this. Now, let uh, me just got some examples. I think uh, we began to see some significant evidence of a less rules-based policy or more discretion is back as far as two thousand two, three, four, where the Federal Reserve and some other central banks had their interest rates much lower than such a rules-based focus would suggest, based on what happened in the 80s and 90s, okay? So that's sort of where it seems to me had be, begun, but since then... I think the policymakers have really doubled down on discretion. In the summer of 2007, the bursting housing bubble began to have impacts on the financial sector. And almost immediately, their actions began to use the Fed's balance sheet uh, to take particular interventions in the economy, things that we've never really seen before. We clearly have to call them discretion and did like deviation from the rules that had worked. Now, I think my own view is that a lot of this early use of the balance sheet led to some ad hoc and chaotic bailouts which actually were harmful. I think I think of them as one of the reasons we had the panic in the September October of 2008. But there were many more since the panic was over and I do I do give the credit do give credit to the Fed for arresting that panic. I think there were some very important decisions made in in uh, October of 2008. But as soon as the panic subsided, it was pretty uh, devastating at the time, but as soon as it subsided, then a whole new range of discretionary actions began. It's really be QE1, we call it now, but it was these large-scale purchases of mortgages. And, of course, now we've continued that with uh, QE2, which are even more um, purchases of, in this case, um, medium-term treasuries, but using the Fed's balance sheet uh, to do that. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned from an economic perspective of this trend. I think they have, they have caused harm. But even if you don't agree with me, and, of course, not everyone agrees with this assessment, it seems to me that these actions do raise uh, questions about why so much power is given to an organization with relatively little accountability and checks and balances. It seems to me that's something that we should be concerned about. Some of the actions take monetary policy into fiscal policy, the allocation of credit from one sector to another. Some of them uh, move into things which normally require appropriation, effectively subsidies. uh, Taxpayer money at risk is a subsidy. We have a credit Reform Act that requires such subsidies be appropriated. So they're not appropriated. So it seems to me these moves into fiscal and credit allocation policies they actually raise some constitutional issues. Not that they—it just that it seems to be not a, completely consistent with the intent of the original Constitution. So there's lots of reasons to be concerned here that are not pure economic. Now, when you think about legislation as a way to help deal with this issue, you immediately have to worry about the, the involvement of politics in the operation of monetary policy. It seems to me, if you're going to have leg- obviously, if you're going to have legislation, the President and the Congress have to be involved in passing the legislation. It seems to me that doesn't mean that the President or the Congress have to be involved in the day-to-day operations of monetary policy. So when I give proposals here for legislation, I don't mean they're politicizing the Fed or bringing more specifically the operations of the Fed and the involvement of the Congress and the President to those operations. And I think, in a way, I'm going to quote two people here to sort of support that view, One is the current chairman of the Fed, who, uh, when looking back at the history of legislation in the last uh, 20, 30 years on monetary policy, um, says this. So this is from Ben Bernanke, 2007, and I'll quote, The Congress has long been aware of the importance of Federal Reserve transparency and accountability. In particular, a series of resolutions and laws passed in the 1970s set a clear policy objectives for Federal Reserve for the Federal Reserve and required it to provide regular reports and testimony to the Congress. That's a seemingly very positive evaluation. And then in addition, some of the people who have been most active in thinking about legislating policy rules over the long period, such as Milton Friedman, are very careful to be clear about what the objective is. And I'm going to quote from Milton Friedman. This is 1962. <clears throat> the objective of legislating rules for the conduct of monetary policy that will have the effect of enable will have the effect of enabling the public to exercise control over monetary policy through its political authorities while at the same time it will prevent monetary policy from being the subject to the of the day-to-day whim of the political authority so i think that's really what i'm trying to do here is to think about being constructive with respect to um, the law, but not interfere with the day-to-day operations in any political way. Okay, so to do this, I want to look back on a little bit on the history of legislation regarding policy rules. And it turns out there are a lot of people in the audience are more familiar with this than me, but so let me let me be uh, be quick about this. In the in the late 1970s, there was several actions by Congress uh, to for reporting and accountability, basically, of the Fed. Well, first is the House Resolution, resolution 133. Um, the second is the Federal Reserve Act of 1977. The third is the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978. And the fourth, you'll be surprised at the title, the American Homeowners and Opportunity Act of 2000. Now, 133 was really one of the first efforts to do this, and quite frankly, the early drafts of this resolution did have the Congress involved in day-to-day operations. It called for specifically the Fed to raise money growth and to lower interest rates at a particular period of time. But through a lot of consultations with the Fed, Arthur Burns was the chairman at that point, the law was articulated in a way, it seems to me, did not have those problems. So what it did was focus on the range of growth of the monetary and credit aggregates. Monetary and credit aggregates was the lingo which was introduced at the time. So this, this uh, resolution was really put into an act of Congress uh, signed by the President in 1977. That's the Federal Reserve Act of 1977. So those same requirements for reporting about the monetary aggregates, the ranges of growth, uh, continued into the 77 Act. And then finally, it was continued the next year into the 78 Act, sometimes called Humphrey-Hawkins. Very similar language, um, more precision about when the testimony would be, February, July, more precision about the time period of the, of the ranges, uh, and, but continuing with the same basic uh, philosophy. Now, um, one thing that I uh, noticed from this review is that, and I'm going to, actually I'm going to m- mention four things I noticed from this review, uh, which are important for what I'm proposing here. So first of all, the legislation never required a particular type of money growth rule. It certainly didn't require the constant growth rate rule for the money supply. All it really did was require that the Federal Reserve report its ranges for the growth rate Of the money and credit aggregates, just propose what, just report what their intentions are. Okay. Second thing, there were some accountability aspects in this law. Uh, It required that the Federal Reserve report uh, in its in its uh, reports, plus in the hearings, uh, the reasons it deviated from those ranges. That was part of the original uh, acts here. Um, However, still my second point. However. This really didn't work too well for a number of reasons. I think the main reason is the monetary aggregates lost their reliability pretty quickly as measures of what was going on. We had uh, deregulation, had Q being removed, technology changes. So the M's became much less reliable. And so as a practical matter, explaining all the time why you're deviating didn't be, wasn't really an accountability exercise at all. Okay, So the first reporting, not specifying, second accountability, but maybe didn't work so well. The third is that the legislation did change over time as it was clear the monetary aggregates weren't very useful. And so that's the 2000 Act. Um, this There's uh, actually one section of the American Homeowners and Opportunity Act. It's Title 10, Section 1003, specifically removed the uh, focus on the credit act monetary and credit aggregates. So that legislation changed. And the fourth thing to observe from this review is when this legislation when this targeting or setting ranges for the money growth was taken out, nothing was put in its place. Nothing about reporting, about specific instruments of policy, nothing about accounting accountability. So in a sense, a void was created, that's what I'm arguing. And in a sense the baby was thrown out with the bathwater. You needed to do some changes because of the monetary aggregates, but nothing was put in its place. So, and effectively, this reporting and accountability concept, uh, at least as described in the legislation in the 1970s, disappeared. So, my idea here is pretty simple. It's basically to repeal the 2000 Act, Section 1003, Uh, and go back to the legislation that existed right before 2000. Use basically the same kind of framework or analysis that was in these late 70s acts, but modify the language to reflect the more modern way of thinking about monetary policy rules, which tends to be through interest rate reaction functions. That's the idea. And I, I think it works pretty well um, for a number of reasons, but I want to actually um, read you my draft legislative language, I really got serious with this, uh, so you can see whether or not you think it works. And the, again, the advantage of doing it this way is there's a lot of experience, and people can make their assessments of how it would work. Okay, so first I want to do reporting requirements language, and then I want to do accountability requirements language and then I want to talk about it. Okay, reporting. The Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System shall transmit to the Congress no later than February 20th and July 20th of each year a written report setting forth, one, the strategy or rule of the Board and the FOMC for the systematic adjustment of the federal funds rate in response to changes in inflation and in the real economy during the current year and in future years along with any additional adjustments needed to achieve the price stability objective. Second, number two, they would report the procedure for adjusting the supply of bank reserves to bring about the desired federal funds rate, recognizing that that rate is determined by the supply of demand reser- reserves in the money market. Okay, that's the language. Now, is, given where we are right now, I probably need a little bit more of kind of an exit strategy uh, to get to that uh, because the balance sheet's so big. But that's really the reporting requirements. And, again, the focus is rather than on a range of growth for the monetary and credit address, the focus is on the strategy or rule uh, for the systematic adjustment of the federal funds rate in response to certain events. Okay? Second is the accountability. So this goes as follows. Nothing in this act shall be interpreted to require that the plans with respect to the systematic quantitative adjustment of the federal funds rate disclosed in the reports and submitted under this section be achieved if the Board of Governors and the FOMC determine that they cannot or should not be achieved because of changing conditions, provided that word provided is in italics in my draft language but also way back when, provided that in the subsequent consultations with and reports to the committees of the Congress pursuant to this section, the Board of Governors shall include an explanation of the reasons for any revisions to or deviations from uh, such a strategy. Okay? So the idea here is not to specify a particular rule, Um, but to allow the Federal Reserve in its deliberations to specify a rule as it sees fit. So this limits discretion in the sense that the rule or the procedure or the strategy, whatever you call it, is reported to the Congress, but it obviously does not eliminate discretion because the central bank has a chance to propose its rule and work on it and et cetera. Now, if, in fact, they chose the Taylor Rule, it would be pretty easy to specify this language. They would say the federal funds rate will react by 1.5 times any changes in inflation. It will react by 0.5 for any declines in GDP relative potential. And it will add 1 percent to that to make sure that the target inflation rate is 2 percent, to achieve that goal of 2 percent. So it would be pretty easy to say. But the Fed can do what it wants in this sense. It can propose something else. It could, for example, propose a rule that doesn't look at real GDP, and it could look at only commodity prices and the inflation number. So it's possible to propose rules which uh, other people favor if the Fed chooses to do that. The important thing is that the Board of Governors, which means the chairman, of course, must uh, explain at the next scheduled testimony no later than the next scheduled testimony the reasons for any deviations from what is proposed and now we have a lot of experience in the last number of years of of uh, academics in fact many people at central banks going back and looking at deviations from policy rules and seeing measuring them Considering the uncertainty of the measures, basically focusing on the deviation. So it is not hard to do this. It's not hard at all. It may be hard to do it in such real time, and it may be very difficult uh, politically to do it in real time. But it's not possible to do it now. Some people, in discussing this, uh, have suggested that this is this is not enough of a restriction. That you need to have a more more accountability. I think again the re- reporting is specifies some kind of a procedure strategy rule, the accountability is the testifying and writing about the reasons for any deviations. It doesn't say they're not possible. It says they're possible if you think that's the thing to do, but you've got to report. So it seems to me some people say that's not enough in terms of accountability. In well, my experience with our Congress, if the, if, it's a, if the hearings are public, which they will be, it seems to me that this kind of testimony and reporting could be quite effective, and accountability, so I, I don't I'm arguing don't know need to go any further than this. It seems to me sufficient, but let's talk about it and see see whether that is is sufficient or not. so I'm going to just um, stop here and just sort of just to review what I've just done because I think it is a is a place to begin thinking about legislative changes. Um, so first thing is to argue first thing I've done here is to argue that rules- based policies without a lot of uh, short-term reactions to things, without a lot lot of discretion, have worked very well. We have lots of experience. It's a good thing to do. We didn't know that 20 years ago when these things were being proposed. Second, there's now a lot of evidence, including this recent period, where deviations from these have led to problems, led to difficulties. Okay, So that suggests the need to return to some kind of a a rules-based policy. Uh, less discretion, more focused. So I also mentioned the fact that one of the reasons to do this, in addition to the economics, is the the very nature of how government operates, the concern of too much power to do things in an institution without sufficient uh, accountability. Uh, Second, I've reviewed history of the last 20 or 30 years, To show, in fact, this is not that unusual. This is not a radical proposal. This is something that has been done before. (laughs) Of course, it originally was resisted by the central bank at the start, by by Arthur Burns, but eventually, I think, was constructive. If you talk to people uh, in the system at the time, the idea of talking about the ranges and we have to project a range basically created a way of thinking which was productive. And so I think this idea of doing the same thing with policy rules will be the same. And then finally, I actually drafted some legislation. That's asking a lot for an economist. Uh, I drafted legislation. Of course, I borrowed a lot from the past and added my own two cents worth, but it obviously the, the lawyers could do a much better job than I have. But it seems to me it's a way to get started, it's a way to get thinking started on this very important objective. Thank you very much.
0: You want to take questions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have microphones. Um, and I would ask that you state your name and your affiliation. Thanks. You
1: can
0: take.
2: take okay. Yes, yeah, sir. Oh, over here. Okay. Oh. Manuel Sanchez from the Bank of Mexico. Um, congr- congratulations. It was a very good presentation. Uh, I noticed that you mentioned that uh, the Fed could have uh, could choose any kind of rule, including. You know, uh, as, uh, commodity prices. Could you elaborate more on, on the on a possibility of a augmenting the Taylor rule? Imagining that maybe you start with a loss function and that you want to minimize some kind of variation uh, uh, for any specific or a specific asset price, or uh, yeah. instance, so, housing so, prices.
1: Okay, I'll be happy to. So, so the so-called uh, rule I propose, Taylor rule. It's pretty specific about the index of inflation. It's a broad broad measure of inflation. Originally, it was the GDP price index. It is pretty specific about you use some kind of measure of GDP relative to potential. So I think the main thing is the main thing that makes it difficult to specify is what you use for those variables, because the other other things are straight straightforward. They're just numbers. So um, I think probably the most difficult is the so-called GDP gap part of it, this deviation from GDP from trend. In fact, some people think you shouldn't do it at all. Some people think it should be more of a reaction. What I, what I think is most reasonable, in fact, there's an example of this right now. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco does a survey of a lot of people's estimates of uh, our, our production relative to capacity. That might be a good way to do it. You get a survey, probably shouldn't be done, it might be nice if it's an outside survey, but you get a survey and that becomes your measure of where you are relative to To potential. Of course, it requires an estimate. So that's, I think, one way to be objective about this very important other variable you're reacting to. Um, The other example I gave is not something I favor, but other people do, and that is you only react to commodity prices, okay? And there's probably people in this room who would like to do that as an alternative to the Taylor rule. And the reason, there's many reasons for that. One is that commodity prices are viewed as a little more forward-looking. They move around in anticipation a little more than indices, which include services and a broader price index. Um, I also find they move around for reasons that are not necessarily good for forecasting. And so the concern I would have for that is it would cause the funds rate to be too volatile, move around too much, Okay. And uh, the, that the, that example also this says there's no reaction to the real economy, to real GDP. It's zero. And um, my concern with that is, in fact, you should be cutting interest rates in a recession. That's good policy. It's, it would be true of a policy where you fix the money growth. And so it's important to have that built in. It doesn't mean that you're taking your eyes off the ball with respect to price stability or inflation. It just means that when there's a recession, the good thing to do for price stability and economic stability is to cut the rate. So I'm really just giving you an explanation of what rule I would think would be better. But, again, I gave the other example here because I think it's fine not to specify a particular rule. I mean, I guess I, guess I would say, my, if I wanted to, you know, thinking about how I do this in the first place, I was imagining we're going to specify a particular rule. But then when you look back at the legislation, in history, that's not how it worked. It was that the Fed proposes a rule, and they think about it and try to do the best job they can. But then that forces a more systematic way of thinking. And since they know if this works, if this is actually passed, that there's some accountability for it, they're going to be careful about what they use. So, so for example, picking a rule where you don't cut rates in a recession, probably not what they're going to do, right, because they, because they are going to be – for sure doing that when the recession comes around. So that would be, be hard to be accountable for that. So I think this process um, uh, will um, – has the potential to work. You mentioned doing uh, simulations or optimal policy calculations. People do that all the time right now. It, Mexico and other places as well, that's part of the analysis of monetary policy. But this is much more specific. This basically says that you've got to put this out and describe what you're doing. Um, so, you know, some members of uh, central banks do this. Uh, uh, there's, um, They all use rules in some sense, as you know, but I think this goes a little further in the sense they've got to put it out there in a very specific way. And, and there's also, uh, from a practical perspective, if you're – if you're forced to do this, you're going to, you're going to find out quickly what the best way is to do it. So I think it seems to me this is something that we'll learn from, as we did with the earlier legislation. Up here.
2: Hi, Pedro Costa with Reuters. Dr. Taylor, uh, you were one of many economists who signed a letter recently uh, basically cautioning against the risks of, of QE2. Uh, that letter was accompanied by a significant political pressure from Republicans, also against quantitative easing. And presumably you signed that letter because you're concerned that QE2 threatens price stability, but what what would you say to those who argue that a political threat to the Fed's independence is the greatest risk to price stability that you could possibly have?
1: Well, a couple of things. I've been writing about uh, the possibility of QE2 before it was called QE2, and, and, and saying this was not a good idea. In fact, based partly on my analysis of QE1, which I didn't think worked very well, and it increase the size of the Fed's balance sheet in ways that not just risk inflation but also risk disruption because those, those reserves have to be pulled out, and that could be, um, uh, have, a, have a negative effect. So I've been writing about this. Probably people are bored with my writing about it so much. I even got a blog. I write about it as much as I can. Um, so this letter basically coincided completely with my way of thinking, just as an economist, completely. So I was very happy to sign it. Now, you're also mentioning um, political figures weighing in, and I don't think there's any problem. In fact, this, this quote I have in my analysis here is very specific about the fact that it's appropriate for the political authorities to, to, to weigh in on, on big strategic types of issues. This, lo- this legislation I'm proposing would be a strategic um, law. And we've had them. And the chairman I quoted from Chairman Bernanke said they were helpful. So that's the kind of thing I have. I mean, the the Federal Reserve Act is a law. (laughs) Passed by the Congress. Signed by the President. That's political. So that's that's what you want to think about. It doesn't mean intervention in day-to-day operations, but when there's a a need for legislation or comments, uh, we have the testimony as it is where these things are raised. So I think it's part of democracy, quite frankly.
0: We have a question up here, and I think it'll have to be the last one.
2: Professor Taylor, thank you. Um, Chris Faulkner Chris from ZBI. Um, one of the criticisms of the Fed um, in the early 2000s was that it increased interest rates in a too predictable manner. It's a very slow, incremental um, policy moves. Um, with an explicit description of their monetary policy reaction function, presumably that predictability would also sort of be now actually enshrined in legislation. So how would you get around some of the associated problems? For example, that action caused a collapse in vol in the interest rate market or helped, helped uh, to induce a collapse in volatility in the interest rate market. And that leads to associated leverage through derivative structures. Um, but there could be other consequences with something like this. Um, how would you cope with those unintended consequences?
1: Well, the period you're thinking about, it, it seems to me, was a good illustration of what I have in mind. Um, fed the Fed's funds rate, predictable, was fixed at one for a long time, uh, but it was far off the policy that worked well in the 80s and 90s. And if If the Fed had said that was our strategy, so for example, suppose back in 2000 this had been put in place instead of nothing, then and suppose that the Fed, its strategy was like what I'm describing here, uh, then the interest rate would have been lower than that, and they would have had to explain it. They might have said we're worried about deflation in Japan, Um, or we're worried, whatever they say now, they would have said then as a rationale. And I think that would be constructive, but it doesn't really mean the federal funds rate is fixed on a day-to-day basis. Uh, in fact, right now, uh, you know, right now some proposals to exit from the policy are to rely on interest on reserves. That's really kind of fixed. That's really a fixing rate, which has makes problems in the market. Price discovery is difficult. So there's nothing here that I'm suggesting that removes the operation of the money markets. In fact, I think I'd say my, my clause here that the reserves should be applied, reserves should be set so that there's equilibrium in the money market. Supply and demand for reserves determines the rate is meant specifically to allow the money market to work, allow the discovery process to work, and not have a specific number set by the Fed. So I think that's, that would work fine.
0: Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.